to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to go back into our study in John 1 through 6. Uh, Josh finished up our um, series on living in the supernatural. If you were not here for that, Josh's message was fantastic. would really encourage you to, uh, to take a listen on our podcast. The last time we were in the Gospel of John, uh, we saw Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. And Jesus explained the way of eternal life. And then John, the gospel writer, breaks in with John 3.16, the verse that so many of us may have memorized as the first verse we knew. And then John, the gospel writer, it's like he pops open the hood on eternal life and he shows specifically how eternal life works. That's where we last left the gospel of John. Now, uh, this morning, we address a very different topic. John the Baptist has a crisis, and John's crisis is that Jesus, in his movement, starts to become bigger than John in his movement. And John's disciples begin to compare themselves to Jesus. And what John does in the verses we look at today is is he basically talks about Comparison, the issue of comparison. And so we're going to see how John the Baptist handled this and how John the Gospel writer affirmed what John the Baptist said. We're going to talk about a sure cure for comparison. When I was 22 years old, I was in a graduate program in Dallas, and I met a guy who was about three years older than I was, and he was astonishingly gifted. He came from a highly accomplished family. He was a very successful student. He consistently posted better grades than I did. He was a charismatic type guy. Wherever he went, people seemed to flock to him. When leadership positions came opened, he was the guy whom people sought out to be part of those leadership positions. As I observed him, it felt like he could do no wrong. And I began, without even knowing it, to compare myself to this, to this individual, incredibly gifted individual. Um, I observed him, and I, I, I thought, you know, it, whereas he's great, I'm merely good. Whereas things come very easily to him, I got to work really hard for everything that I get. And I could not break out of that trap of comparison for about two and a half years. I could not compete against this guy and make any progress. I knew I shouldn't do it, but I, I did it. I compared myself to him. I lost track of him for several years, but through an odd set of circumstances, we reconnected in a different city and we became friends. We eventually had some very long conversations that were highly authentic. And I was shocked by what had happened back in the past. Because all those gifts I assumed he had weren't as great as I assumed. That family that uh, supposedly was an amazing family had some complex dysfunctions in it. All the things that I thought he was, he was projecting and they weren't real 
on the inside. And the thought hit me, I've completely wasted my time comparing myself against a person who I thought was one way and they really weren't that way. I wasted a lot of time and I had poisoned my mind in a lot of ways. But I want you to notice what I was doing. I was comparing myself in an area that mattered to me. Communication, leadership, those were two areas that mattered to me. I did not compare myself against some, some uh, other field that did not matter. We compare ourselves in areas that, are, that matter intensely to us. For instance, moms might compete against other moms comparing themselves. Bodybuilders may compete or compare themselves against other bodybuilders. Business executives will compare and compete against other business executives. We compare in areas that matter to us. I have to tell you, I do not compare myself against people who are good at ballet. I don't do that. I don't compare myself against people who are fantastic at archery. I don't do that. That may matter to somebody else. That's great. It, that doesn't matter to me. We compare ourselves to others in areas that matter to us. And when we start doing that, we will typically use very damaging self-talk. And the self-talk sort of goes like this. Ah, I'm an idiot. Why can't I do it as, as good as she can? Uh, will, I, will I ever be able to break out of this? Uh, w w what's wrong with you? You're ridiculous. We use damaging self-talk in order to uh, motivate ourselves, maybe to push ahead and to compete against the person we compare ourselves to. I want you to know that comparison was the first sin in the Bible. If you look at Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 15, what you realize is that Lucifer is comparing himself against the God of the universe. He becomes filled with insane jealousy, and he wants to be God in God's place. Comparison. Comparison was the second human sin in the Bible. Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He does not accept Cain's sacrifice. So what, is, what does Cain do? He becomes filled with jealousy and angry comparative frustration, and he rises up and he kills his brother. Comparison was a huge problem with the disciples. Remember how the, the disciples, uh, particularly James and John, you know, wanted power in the kingdom. And they thought they could just go to Jesus and get that power as if Jesus was doling out power on a first-come, first-served basis. They were comparing and competing. So what in, in John 3, 22 through 36, John the Baptist is going to model for us a solution to the trap of comparison. And what we, what we do is we start off with a problem. The problem in a nutshell is when we don't see the results we expect in life, we begin to question our identity. We have certain expectations. We grow up with those expectations in high school and college, maybe our first job. And when things don't turn out like we expect, we question our identity, and it's then we, we're drawn toward a place of comparison. Here's, here's the first part of the passage. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. 
John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Comparison. Now this story is, is really fascinating. Salim was a great place for doing baptisms. John was up there and Salim is a, uh, Anon is a place that means springs and Salim was near that place. So John sets up his camp at a place that had plentiful water expecting that his movement would continue to grow. Lots of water is there. We can accommodate big crowds there. We're excited about the growth that we anticipate. At the same time, Jesus also is going north, and Jesus is having a ministry of baptism. We sometimes don't forget that you know, we, Jesus did some baptisms. He didn't do them personally, but his disciples were doing some baptisms. And they were presumably doing these both along the route that went up the Jordan River. Uh, so imagine that you are walking on this main route, this main north-south route, it was along the Jordan River, and here in one place, Jesus is doing baptisms, and here in another place, John is doing baptisms, and these are well-known spots and well-known baptisms, and people are beginning to talk about the ministries of John and Jesus, and it's natural that a comparison begins to take place. And somebody comes to the disciples of John and they say, um, Jesus is baptizing more people than you are. And how do, John's, how do John's disciples feel about that? No, really? We went to this big place with lots of springs so that we could accommodate all this growth we expected. And now we're declining. And it is, it is really frustrating and they begin to feel panicked. Now here's how I know they felt panicked. They catastrophized the situation. Notice what they say. Rabbi, now listen very carefully to these words. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bear witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They catastrophized the situation. Now, first of all, the, we, the way, we, way we know this is that they don't mention Jesus' name. They knew it was Jesus. Why won't they mention his name? Because they're thinking competition. They're competing against a person whose movement is growing faster than theirs. They aren't even willing to state his name. And notice the hyperbole. All are going to him. Now, they're not all going to him. There's still people going to John the Baptist, but they're catastrophizing the situation. Their identity is wrapped up in the John the Baptist movement, and that movement is plateauing and maybe starting, starting to go down, and they're catastrophizing the situation like everything's falling apart for us now. Comparison often results in catastrophic thinking. Now, 
that's what we need to, to know first about, about this whole issue of comparison, is that it often results in catastrophic thinking. Let's, let me show you how this works today. Let's say that a, a pretty girl looks at herself in the mirror, and she's a genuinely beautiful young woman. She looks herself in the mirror, and she says, oh my gosh, look at me. I don't compare at all to my friend in my class in high school or my sorority sister. I don't even compare at all. Look at all the things that are wrong with me. Look at all my flaws. I'm ordinary. She's beautiful. What, what's wrong with me? Why do I look the way that I look? Comparison often results in catastrophic thinking. Now, this genuinely beautiful young woman is genuinely beautiful, but she's catastrophized her looks in light of her comparison to somebody else. Well, think about an entrepreneur who has built a solid, modest, growing business. It's a good business. And yet, he has a friend who has built a solid, explosive business. And he begins to compare himself to his friend who's enjoyed staggering growth. And he, he says, like, what is wrong with me? I, I'm a terrible businessman. I'm a non-gifted entrepreneur. I can't do this right. If I did, my growth would not be modest. My growth would be explosive, like my friend's business growth is. And what this person has done is he has catastrophized what God has done in his modest, stable, and growing business. Or here's, here's, uh, <clears throat> here's the principle, catastrophic expectations, and here's, here's another way this happens. How many people have gone on Facebook, don't, please don't raise your hands. I know some of you are, are, are like wanting to get your hand up and raise your hand. And you read a Facebook post and you, you looked at that post and thought, I'm not there. I don't have that kind of family. I don't have that kind of education. I don't have that kind of wealth. I don't have that really cool opportunity. I'm not there. And you think, and you catastrophize your own situation because you compared yourself to somebody else. Now, to complicate things, John's disciples are confronted by a theological question. Um, remember, people are going back and forth, up and down this road from Jerusalem up to Galilee. And um, people are comparing John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry. And people begin to ask theological questions about these ministries. The Old Testament commanded all these um, rituals for purification. And uh, the Bible, is, Bible is, talks about these rituals. But if you were part of a political party like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes, you added layers of rules onto the biblical precepts about, about purification. So rather than just a simple washing it was a complex washing. So these people going up and down the road are asking theological questions about these baptisms. Like, John the Baptist, why are you doing it the way you're doing it? 
What, what political party are you part of? Scenes, Pharisees, Sadducees? And what happens when you begin to ask political questions? Is everybody just, oh yeah, fine, we'll talk politics, no big deal. No, no, the polarization that we experience today in our highly politicized environment was every bit as rancorous as the politicization of life in the first century. It was terrible in the first century. Pharisees and Sadducees arguing over many, many things. And so this person uh, comes up to John the Baptist's disciples and, and, he, and he begins to question the theological legitimacy of this baptism. And so now John's disciples are, are even in a darker place. Their movement is plateaued and might be shrinking, and now the theological basis upon which they're doing this is being questioned. It's like their, their significance is systematically being stripped away. And I wonder if that's ever happened, happened to you. Circumstances in your life begin to close in. Everything you pinned your identity on is being stripped away. I've seen this happen with friends of mine who went through a season, a bad season in their life, where their marriage was in pain, their business was in pain, their kids weren't doing particularly well, and their finances were, were not doing particularly well. And it's like everything is systematically being stripped away from them. What's the temptation in a season like that? To look at somebody who is successful and say, why aren't I like him? Why aren't I like her? That's what happens when you get your, your identity systematically stripped away. I've, I know a pastor in a different city who was a very good father. Like most Christian couples, he and his wife yearn for uh, the best for their kids, a godly future for their sons and daughters. They were very, very intentional with the way they, they brought up their kids. But one of their kids chose an, an alternate lifestyle that was very painful and very complicated for mom and dad. Do you think they caused them pain? It caused them a lot of pain. Do you think it caused him to question his abilities as a father? Yes, it did. That decision by that child caused a deep questioning of his identity as a father. And when that happens, it's very easy for comparison to become the default option for how we think. Now it gets even worse. To complicate things more, John is facing growing persecution. There's this little parenthetical pr phrase that says, for John had not yet been put in prison. That is a sad verse. It's a sad verse. Shortly after this incident, John confronted Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas got romantically involved with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, being uh, designated a prophet, was called upon to confront Herod Antipas for his inappropriate, immoral liaison with his brother's wife. Herod didn't like that. Herod tosses him into prison. And um, John's now in prison, and John is struggling with, did I, 
did I identify the right person? And then one night, Herod throws a party at his beautiful palace overlooking the Dead Sea. A young girl does a dance at the party. Herod is drunk. He's intoxicated with the beauty of this dancer. He says to the dancer, I'll give you anything you want. You name it. And the dancer says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's a real party downer. And she gets it. Fifteen minutes later, somebody lops off the head of John the Baptist, and it appears on a platter at the dinner party. So think about this. If you're thinking about this from John's standpoint, uh, John had expectations. Expectations of greatness. And John's life was painful. Imagine that you're writing John's LinkedIn profile. You know, you're logging into John's LinkedIn site, and you're going to write a profile for John the Baptist on LinkedIn. And it said something like this. John pointed the way to Jesus. John's movement stalled out. John began losing some of his followers. John spoke out against injustice. John was thrown into prison. In prison, he questioned many things about his life. And finally, John dies cruelly and senselessly at the hands of a drunken, power-hungry leader. Does that sound like a, like a life well-lived, humanly speaking? No, it doesn't. It does not. If you compare John's life to the life of, say, an NFL quarterback or an NBA MVP, John's life seems like a failure. But what, what did Jesus say from heaven's perspective was the true significance about John's life? He said, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Human metrics give us one value system for success. Heavenly metrics give us a radically different perspective on success. What we value is intellect, beauty, health, wealth, strength, sharpness, results, success, and 101 likes on our latest Facebook post. We value that stuff. God values something else. And let me just be very clear about what God values. He values faithfulness to Him within the real circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. God loves it when we're dedicated to him within the specific real circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. Can you control everything about your future? No, you can't. Try as we might. God loves it when we are faithful within the real circumstances in which we find ourselves in right now. If we compare ourselves to others, we totally miss that mark of, of faithfulness. So <clears throat> here's John the Baptist's example. My true spiritual north is fidelity to Jesus and the real life I live right now, no matter what's going on around me. So everybody in here has a certain life right now. Some of you may say, it is everything I'd hoped for and more. If that's you, that is incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare. Most of us look at our real life and go, 
I could have done this better, this better, this better. I wish this had happened differently. Ugh. Fidelity to Jesus in the real life I live right now is where my true spiritual north is. And God is pleased when we embrace that and live that way. So how do we combat comparison? It's an insidious thing in our lives. I could just tell you, I could say to you, just cut it out. Just stop doing it. But that wouldn't work because you need tools. So now we get the tools. And the first tool is an internal set of tools. And it's this, to combat comparison, you focus on your core identity in Christ. You have a core identity in Christ. Every, every one of us in here knows Christ. A core identity. You focus in on that core identity in Christ. And I'm going to give you three steps in doing this. And this is going to sound a little bit like the steps of recovery. They're not, but it'll, it'll sound that way. But here's step one. Admit you are not God. John 3.27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. If you sum up that verse, what John is saying is, I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not the one who determines all the details of my life. What I have been given, I have been given from heaven. And my role is the role of preparing the way for Jesus. That's my role. However my life turns out, I want fidelity to that role. I'm not God. I'm not the one who determines the course of my life. He's the one who does it. You think about John. You know, John the Baptist is not going to retire, get a book contract, become a YouTube sensation, move to the Emerald Golf Course on Maui with his new wife half his age. Not going to do that. Not going to happen. From a human standpoint, he's going to look like a failure. And yet what John did made Jesus say he is the greatest person who ever lived. You're not God. You can't engineer everything in your life that you want to engineer. Now, just parenthetically, I would say every one of us in here lives in the greatest generation ever for being able to have control over our destiny. We are not like past generations that had very little bits of control. We, in the year 2018, have massive amounts of control over our destiny. We live in a country that's an incredible country for having massive control over your destiny. Try living in Sudan and see how much control you have over your destiny. Or living in Siberia and seeing how much control you have over your destiny. We live in an incredible country for that. But even so, you're not God. And you don't control everything about your life. And at some level, what we have to do is joyfully live in submission to the sovereignty of God. Here is step, step two. I affirm that I am a servant of God. John 3.29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John is using the illustration of a first century wedding. So here's how first century weddings worked. 
I had the privilege of doing a wedding last night, and the wedding we did last night did not happen the way Jewish weddings happen. First, your parents choose a bride from a family that they respect. They negotiate a contract, they set a date, and on the day that you are betrothed, you're legally married, but you can't consummate the marriage, and you can't have the wedding yet. That's going to be about a year away. So meanwhile, the groom gets his finances in order, and meanwhile, the bride prepares herself, and about nine to ten months later, the groom will surprise the bride by coming into the bride's village with a, with a sound of a trumpet and with the groom's attendants, among whom is the best man. On the day of the groom's party, uh, of, the, of, of the wedding, everybody drops everything that they're doing, and they prepare themselves for a seven-day wedding feast. I can't even, most of us can't even imagine a seven-hour reception, much less a seven-day wedding feast. We're doing nothing but celebrating uh, uh, the bride and the groom. Um, the bride and the groom on day one of the wedding celebration would go into the tent and they would consummate the marriage. Everybody's dancing around and enjoying it, knowing what the bride and groom are doing inside the tent. They would consummate the marriage. And you have, you have this go-to person in all the wedding, which is the best man. The best man is, is the pastor. He's the wedding planner. He's the wedding coordinator all wrapped up into one. And the best man is there to serve the, the groom. If the groom needed more wine, the best man was there to get it. If the groom needed more food, the best man was there to get it. Groom needed more space to be with his wife, best man was there to provide it. He did, he did everything. One job description, that is serve the groom. And John says, look, I'm like the best man at a Jewish wedding. Everything I do in my life is designed to serve Jesus. That's, that's my role. And if you're going to defeat comparison in your life, you have to remember that that is your essential role. You might be a, a nurse, you might be a contractor, you might be an attorney, you might be a doctor, you might be a teacher, you might be a professor, you might be a stay-at-home mom. Those are all your occupations, but your primary objective is to serve Jesus and let him be sovereign over your future. Maybe you'll be rich and famous. Maybe you'll be persecuted. Maybe you'll live a comfortable life. Maybe you'll live a life that involves danger and risk. You don't know what the future has in store, but you know your primary job description, and it's not to be the groom. That's Jesus. He gets to be the groom. You get to be the best man who exists to serve the groom. And that leads us to step three, find joy in his kingdom work. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him and rejoices greatly. Now, let's stop there for a second. Do you think that the best man at a Jewish wedding would ever get irritated at the groom's voice? I think that's possible. I can just see the groom saying, every day he's asking me for more wine and then more food. And then he wants to make out with his wife in the tent. And I've got to guard the entrance of the tent. Hear all the noises inside. Every day I've got more and more work to do. I get three hours sleep a night. It's very frustrating. Very frustrating. I'll never be best man at a wedding ever again. 
it would be possible to be frustrated at the voice of the groom. Uh, and many best men did get frustrated at the voice of the groom. But John says, I'm not that kind of, not, not that kind of best man. He said, uh, I'm the kind of best man who constantly rejoices at the voice of the bridegroom. This joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's the idea that I derive my joy not in being the groom, not in controlling the groom. I derive my joy in responding to the voice of the groom and then doing what he says. If you want to beat comparison, the way you beat comparison is by living in a present, abiding relationship with Jesus of gratitude and joy. Um, gratitude and joy are not popular in our culture because we live in an entitlement culture. We live in a culture that says, I have my rights. You've impinged upon my rights. I have been wronged and I'm angry at the fact that I've been wronged. I deserve reparations from you. I deserve to be repaid the wrong you've done to me. I'm angry at this, at you. That's the kind of world we live in. That's the kind of ethos that's out there in the culture. What John is calling us to is a radically different kind of ethos where we rejoice in the agenda of Jesus. And we, we learn this discipline of gratitude. I love the quote by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. What G.K. Chesterton could not have known when he wrote this is that there is evidence-based science behind that wonderful statement. And the evidence-based science is, is being done by a lot of different researchers. One, one of them is Robert Emmons, who researches gratitude at the University of Miami. And he wrote a, a book chapter entitled Gratitude, Well-Being and the Brain. And here's what Emmons says, there's growing evidence suggesting that gratitude is a key element for sparking positive and sustained changes in individual well-being. He goes on to say that the spirit, the, the, is, is not a Christian book, the discipline of gratitude does something neurologically in our brain. Here's how Christopher Berglund described it. When the brain feels gratitude, it activates areas responsible for feelings of reward, moral cognition, subjective value judgments, fairness, economic decision-making, and self-reference. These areas include the ventral and dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, as well as the anterior cingulate cortex. What he's saying is that when you practice gratitude, there are neurological changes that take place in your brain that make it easier for you to sustain joy. How cool of God to create an organ that allows for us to become literally, this is probably a bad word to use, but I'll use it, addicted to gratitude. I say addicted because the neural pathways change the more you practice gratitude. Again, I want to just point out this is very, very countercultural. A rights-based, grievance-based, entitlement-based culture makes gratitude hard 
to impossible. If I'm going to avoid the quicksand of comparison, I need the daily discipline of gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, briefly, what I want to do is I want to switch to, from John the Baptist to John the Gospel writer, who gives us a second set of tools. First set of tools are internal. Second set of tools are vertical. To combat comparison, I focus on the supremacy of Jesus. And John the Gospel writer now talks about the supremacy of Jesus. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Gospel writer says, let me explain that verse. So John the Gospel writer is going to explain it in the, the remainder of the verses. This is all about the supremacy of Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent, that would be Jesus, utters the words of God, for he, that is Jesus, gives the spirit without measure. That is a lot of big theology, but let me, let me net it out for you. Here are four reasons why Jesus is the greatest. Number one, he's from heaven. He's from heaven. So if, if I'm going to let Jesus increase in my life and me decrease, I'm going to do it because I realize, look, he's from heaven, I'm from the earth, and I have the privilege of living in relationship with him, but I'm not him. So I'm going to respect him, adore him, revere him, and follow him. But I am fundamentally not him. A second part of Jesus, why Jesus is the greatest, is he's the source of supernatural transformation. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. That's what John says. No one receives his testimony. In other words, people reject the news that Jesus brings. But whoever receives Jesus' testimony, he, he approves of what Jesus says. That's a big theological statement by John saying Jesus brings forth supernatural transformation. So why should Jesus increase in my life and I decrease? Because Jesus is my transformer. As he increases in my life and I decrease, I become transformed as a human being, as a follower of Jesus. Third, he has all authority over the universe. All authority over the universe. This comes from verse 35. The Father loves the Son, and the Father has given all things into his hand. Jesus is the supreme authority over the entire universe. No one is greater. And then finally, he is the sole source of salvation. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, meaning not obeying the good news of the gospel, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Does Jesus really deserve to increase in my life? Will I decrease? Yes. Why? He shows the way to heaven. He provides supernatural transformation. He's the ultimate spiritual authority. And he's the only way to the Father. So with that in mind, let's look at some takeaways. Here's some practical strategies for, bat for battling comparison. I have to tell you, you've got to be ruthless if you're going to battle comparison in your life. The first step is to identify triggers. All of us have comparison triggers. A comparison trigger is a button in your life that can be pushed 
And when it's pushed, you compare. Um, I don't have comparison triggers, as I said, for being good at ballet. I don't have comparison triggers for being really good at archery. I don't, I don't identify in those areas. I don't compete with myself or anybody else in those areas. You have your areas that are unique to you. I have my areas that are unique to me. You have to identify those triggers so that when you see a trigger about to be pushed or pulled or however, whatever you do with triggers, when you see that trigger, you say, oh, I'm in a danger zone. I'm in a red zone. I got to be careful about this. This is where I usually default to comparison. Some triggers could be like this. Looks, beauty, and attractiveness. Other triggers could be intellect. Uh, other triggers could be in the area of money. For others, it's in the area of athletic prowess. Could be a thousand different things. You've got to identify your triggers. I hope some of you are doing that right now. I hope some of you are saying, I know what mine is. I know what mine is. Second strategy for battling uh, comparison uh, is to do an inventory with God. Um, I'm not talking about a negative inventory like we do at Celebrate Recovery. I'm talking about a positive inventory. What has God done in your life that you can thank him for? I've told you this many times, but I have a file in Word with the creative title, Thanksgiving for Recent Victories. That's my title, Thanksgiving for Recent Victories. I have thanked him for people who led me to Christ, for mentors, for people who helped Cindy and I build a very strong marriage. I've thanked him for the gifts that he's given to me, for his crucial provision in times of need, for provisions that were miraculous, for provisions that were just simply providential. I've thanked him for completely random things, and I have this long now inventory of blessings. And I often go back and I look at that list and I go, Lord, thank you for that. Wow, I forgot about that. Lord, that's amazing. That, that I'm, I needed to read that right now because I'm thankful for something today that you've done consistently for me in the past. So if you want to battle comparison, take stock of all the things that God has previously done in your life. Listen, you have a little eraser in your mind. And that little eraser erases your memory of God's past blessings. It's like that movie, Men in Black, right? Where you, he pushed that button and it would erase the memory of what just, just happened. You have an eraser in your mind that will erase your memories of really good things that God has done in your life. You've got to battle against that by keeping an inventory of the great things that God has done. Here's a third strategy, and that strategy is ask God to refine your desires, all right? Here's truth-telling time for me. Um, after I completed my doctor of ministry degree in 2009, I wanted, in the worst way, to get a second doctorate. I know. Why would you ever want to do that? Why? I love the academic process. I love the camaraderie of the students. I would see Josh at Jude's working on his doctorate, and I would think, oh man, what, I'd love to be back in that position. I saw friends of mine who were in academic uh, programs, and I thought, that's fun. Doesn't get any better than that. I know, weird, weird. 
Weird. One day, I'm out in my backyard, working in the backyard, and clear as a bell, I heard words something like this from the Lord, Rod, not going to happen. What I want you to do is I want you to pursue a coaching certification. Literally, it was not an audible voice, but it, but it, was, it was as clear as it could possibly be. And I can remember th- saying, okay, okay, I'll do it. That has turned out to be an incredible blessing for our church. Me becoming certified to coach with the Gallup Springs Finder has been helpful in marriage counseling. It's been helpful in premarital counseling. It's been helpful in the work we've done in Cuba, Costa Rica, Morocco. It's been incredibly helpful in discipleship. God has used that tremendously. But I needed to have God refine my desires because those desires were moving in a direction that would not have been the best for me and Grace Community Church. So if you have this passionate desire to do something, I would encourage you, ask God to refine that desire to what he wants. And the final takeaway is to pray over your refined longings. Dream with God about what could be in your future. It's very easy for us to sit down and go, I know what I want. God, I I want this from you. Please give it to me. As opposed to saying, Lord, here's what I want, but tell me what should I have? I had this one desire, and I was praying about this desire literally every day for a year. And one day, I felt like the Lord was telling me to pray, Rod, Go ahead and pray for that thing, but then add this to the end of the prayer. Lord, I I want you to do this, this thing in my life or the equivalent, or the equivalent. Just that little phrase switched me in my prayer direction to being in a much better place. So comparison is a killer. It's a killer. It was the first sin in the, in the Bible, led to Lucifer's rebellion in Isaiah 14. It drove Cain to murder in Genesis chapter 4. It drove the disciples to a bickering, angry tirade at the, at the Last Supper. Comparison is a killer. And the way you battle comparison is by looking at that, at that internal thing that you have, that relationship you have with Jesus, that identity you have in Christ. And it's by, it's, it's, it's by doing these disciplines of gratitude, these disciplines that, that make you say, I'm not, I'm not God, I'm the servant of God. Now, as we pray, I want, oh, we're going to have communion here in just a second. I'm going to turn the lights low. As we pray, I want you to identify your biggest point of comparison. I got mine in my head right now. I want you to identify your biggest point of comparison. And then we'll, we'll take communion. Father in heaven, we, uh, we just collectively just take, take this point of comparison and we, we lay it before you. We lay it before you and we say to you, Lord, um, 
Will you please refine our desires? Will you please create in us perhaps new desires? Will you please create in us fresh visions for the future? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the groom and we're the best, best man. And Lord, we exist to serve you. We pray that we would do this with joy and gratitude. In Christ's name, amen.